Hi, my name is Anastasia Battle with the Schiller Institute. Welcome to our international youth conference. It's so wonderful to see all of your many faces from all over the world. Uh, we're honored today to have Mrs. Helgetsep LaRouche, uh, founder of the Schiller Institute. Um, and she's gonna be giving a pretty uh, wonderful class and presentation today and a discussion with all of you uh, to talk about our new initiative, Operation Even Cena. And what we've been doing uh, really for the last couple of years now is we've had an operation to create the third generation youth movement of our organization all over the world. We've been growing. We've been taking the passion of our young people to go onto campuses, to go out into the streets, to go onto the internet, to fight with leaders, world leaders, to really make the changes for the good in the world right now. And given the situation, I'm sure many of you have been keeping in touch with what we've been doing. If not, I'm sure you recognize that there's a lot of very stressful tensions going on uh, in the world between uh, NATO and Russia, uh, what you're seeing with just massive starvation. Uh, 45 million people are on the verge of starvation. 22 of those people, 22 million are on the verge of starvation in Afghanistan alone. So that's where this operation Even Sina is coming from. We cannot tolerate this. This is not something which people should turn a blind eye to and pretend that it's not happening. And all of you today, I'm sure are aware that this is just not the way humanity should function. So why isn't there action being taken now? You know, many people who are good people don't act in the moment when it's necessary because they have all these fears in their head. Oh, I don't have power. I don't have the ability to say or do this. But what about the power to change someone's mind? What about the power to spark an idea in, someone's, um, in someone else's mind to educate them? And we really want to educate uh, the youth of the world, get them to become more potent in their ability to fight for um, those ideas, to activate more people to, to change. Uh, and that's how we're gonna be able to get something like Operation Even Sina to develop the region uh, in Southwest Asia. That's how we're gonna be able to get the new Silk Road uh, built all over the world. So uh, I think I'll, I'll open it up for Helga here um, so she can uh, present us uh, what she has on Operation Even Cena. Um, yeah, I wanted to greet you all and you know wherever you may be on the planet, uh, I think it is very good that we are coming here together for this, what I call Oper Operation Even Cena. <clears throat> now, um, you will see over the course of my presentation why um, this name of Ibn Sina, who is known in the West generally as Avicenna, and who is one of the absolute towering giants of universal history, why his name is the most suitable, uh, you know, to, to, to, to address what, what Anastasia just said, namely this unbelievable crisis of humanity, which we 
are confronted with. I mean, we have now <clears throat> since about two years, a pandemic, uh, which is completely out of control. It would not have to be out of control if the rich countries would have, you know, proven to be a little bit more smart, understanding that you can only solve a pandemic when every single country uh, has a modern health system and that it doesn't help them at all to collect the vaccines and hoard them and then leave the developing countries without it because then you have exactly what is happening now you have mutations delta omicron and who knows you know how many of such mutations will will still come this is why you know even sina is the name for the fight to get a world health system and you know the most obvious situation i mean i'm not saying other countries don't don't need it um, but the most outrageous biggest scandal is the fact that in afghanistan there is right now the greatest humanitarian crisis on the planet unfolding uh, and <clears throat> you know it's not just some catastrophe which came from you know nature or so when the taliban left in uh, when the taliban took over and the nato troops left in august everybody knew that 75 percent of the budget of afghanistan came from international donor countries and these monies were cut because they didn't like the taliban and that meant that everybody knew that the afghan uh, <clears throat> economy would completely collapse and you know now we are five months later and since many months david beasley from the world food program and other un officials have warned that you know over 90 percent of the people are food insecure which means they are starving and they have no access to medicine and that in the middle of a pandemic uh, I call this genocide. Um, <clears throat> it is like what happened in Germany uh, around 80 years ago, where then later when the Nuremberg trials took place, the question was all, also who knew what when? And now, because of the you know international media, TV, the internet, nobody can say that they could not know. So what is the purpose of this call and you know my urgent urgent request to you the young people that we have to create a force to establish justice on the planet and the first place this has to start is we have to change public opinion in respect to afghanistan there are these people who say you know that uh, the taliban has to first give the rights to the women. Now that's the biggest uh, hypocritical argument I have ever heard because when you have women <clears throat> starving with their children, cannot give milk because they are starving themselves, are freezing to death. And now I want, to, I want you to show the first uh, six pictures um that you know you, you can forget about women's rights because these women are right now dying of starvation uh, and their children as well and i want you to look at these pictures uh one after the other because you know 
you have to be able to take that suffering into your heart and into your mind and not do what most people do that they you know push it out of their mind and you know say i don't go there what do i have to do with afghanistan we have a lot to do with afghanistan nato was there for 20 years the afghan people have suffered from war conditions since 40 years and you know we in the west in particular have an absolute morality a moral uh, obligation uh, to help to solve this crisis which would be very easy uh, the united nation has just said what is needed to immediately uh, stop this dying of right now eight million people who are dying right now as we are speaking and about 23 24 million are in danger to not live out this winter it would only require five billion dollars five billion dollars if you think you know that is the proverbial peanuts think about the trillions of dollars which have been used to save the banking system in the last several years think about the 600 uh, 760 billion military budget of the united states alone so five billion you know would be the proverbial peanuts and we have to create a movement worldwide to reverse this and create so much pressure on public opinion that an aid program uh, can can immediately start now um the um the operation ibn sina um, is um, called according to ibn sina who unlike in the west uh, where he used to be very famous uh, in the middle ages and even in the you know up to the recent period he is very famous in the islamic world um, and you know not only because of his contributions in metaphysics in all the different sciences but especially in the history of medicine uh, he was one of the absolute outstanding great physicians in world history together with the greek doctors hippocrate galen um, ibn sina and you know I mean, really, the, maybe in, you can count them in one hand or two hands, fingers. Uh, he is one of the absolute outstanding one. Uh, that he was very famous, you can see by the fact that there were 30 stamp editions uh, published uh, until 1987. Many of you may have either read the novel, The Physician, called Medicus in German, by uh, Gordon Noah. Uh, there's also a movie about it, a Hollywood movie, which many people have seen. There's even a musical uh, written about it. So, you know, it's not that we are talking about some obscure person, but Ibn Sina was, without any question, the central figure in the Arab Islamic philosophy of this period, what is generally called the Golden Age of Islam, which started in Baghdad, in the Abbasid dynasty, the Caliphate, which um, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, where Europe was basically plunged into a dark age and all the great treasures of the Greek classics were essentially lost because the Romans did not pay any attention uh, to the absolutely outstanding contributions of the Greek classics 
because they became very quickly an empire which did not consider uh, <clears throat> the intellectual fruits of this period. Therefore, you know, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, because of an incredible effort by the Baghdad caliphs, Al-Mansur, Al-Mamun, and others, uh, they practically saved the knowledge which had been completely in danger of being forgotten uh, in Europe by sending emissaries to all the European countries and the countries around the Mediterranean and uh, basically weighed in gold all the crucial texts from the original thinkers and discoverers uh, so that basically they saved all existing knowledge of that time. And Baghdad at that point, you know, this was starting 750 uh, AD, uh, was the city worldwide with the most books, the most scientists, and it was just the absolute capital of, of progress of the world. Now, especially the texts of the Greek classical philosophy and science uh, <clears throat> were translated and where general knowledge in the entire Arab world, also Persia. And, you know, at that time, the Arab world was much, much, much more advanced than Europe, which was really, you know, in a, in a terrible uh, condition. Now, therefore, Ibn Sina, who read all of this and, you know, was absorbing all the Greek texts, the, you know, the translations, uh, Aristotle, he read like 40 times the metaphysics, and he said he 40 times did not understand it, which is understandable because uh, it doesn't make much sense, frankly. Anyway, that was just my comment. But he also uh, absorbed 2,000 years of Eurasian philosophy. And he basically, uh, nevertheless, used all this knowledge to become a completely independent thinker, an original thinker, who naturally commented on Aristotle and other people like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, and many others. But to say that he was an Aristotelian is what some, some uh, writings are saying, is completely false. It's, you know, you can also not call Schiller a Kantian just because he wrote his, his entire aesthetic letters and aesthetic writings against Kant, that doesn't make him a Kantian. So um, basically, uh, he used this uh, knowledge, including the writings of the Neoplatonists of his time, uh, such as uh, Proclus, who tried to reconcile Plato and Aristotle. And uh, so Ibn Sina knew almost the entire philosophical tradition up to his time. He was an incredibly prolific writer. He wrote uh, about 200 to 775 major works. Many of them have not been saved. Um, and he was evolving his ideas throughout his whole life, um, you know, as all great thinkers do. You know, you never start uh, out as a young person with the same complete set of knowledge what you accumulate over the length of your uh, time. And so he basically uh, was uh, writing certain absolute breakthroughs, like, for example, 
what he's most famous for naturally is his famous canon of medicine. Uh, these were five books, which was an unprecedented, never before uh, collected encyclopedia of medical science, um, which uh, had, you know, many uh, components, which I mentioned in a second. But he was also uh, writing on natural sciences, practically all faculties, mathematics, uh, geometry, um, biology, geography. Uh, but he also was versed in poetry, music, and he was sort of a wonder child who, when he was only 10 years old, uh, already uh, knew the entire Quran by heart. And he had from his father, you know, gotten some of the best teachers in also in, uh, in jurisprudence, in um, law, uh, Islamic law. Um, and but he learned more quickly than all his teachers. So he quickly became an autodidact, somebody who was self-taught. So if you look at the area where he came from, uh, his father was born in Barak. Uh, this is near Mazakh al-Sharif. This is in northern Afghanistan today. And Balkh uh, had been made the capital of Alexander the Great uh, after he had conquered this entire region, you know, Alexander the Great went all the way with his conquests uh, up to India. And he called, uh, he made the city Balkh the capital of his province, Bactria. Um, later, um, you know, his father moved to Afshana, which is near Bukhara, where today, today Uzbekistan is, where his mother came from. Uh, which was a very important cultural center where many historians, poets, scientists of all categories uh, were also gathered. His family was extremely educated, including uh, his, his mother. And um, <clears throat> so he had an incredibly rich uh, environment. Um, you can read all of that in his autobiography, which Ibn Sina dictated to one of his students called Chusjani. So this region, uh, we have to do a lot more studies and I want to invite all of you to uh, engage yourself with us in these studies because you know, nowadays people look at Afghanistan and Central Asia you know, as, as one of the regions of the world which are you know, in, in terrible crisis. But it, this region was once known as the land of the thousand cities, Bactria. Uh, this was in the time of classical Greece, and it has an incredibly rich history about which people in the West know almost nothing. And, you know, that is one of the reasons why people have such a hard time to understand that you cannot go into Afghanistan and try to impose Western democracy, which is a whole farce by itself, but that's for, for another discussion, but that you cannot impose a culture on a culture which has its own very, very clear cultural roots in poetry and science. So one of the aims of Operation Ibn Sina is to also um, basically make known to the world the incredibly important contribution to universal history, um, to our own contemporaries and future generations 
because we want to build uh, a completely new paradigm where a dialogue of cultures, um, you know, among all the nations and all the cultures has an equal partnership where each contributes the best tradition of their own history and relates to the best tradition of the other one, uh, because that is the only basis for a world living in peace and harmonious development. So let me start with uh, the most important works um, he wrote about metaphysics. Another title is about the healing of the soul. Um, because Ibn Sina had the idea that what philosophy does uh, for the mind, he, namely healing it, medicine does for the body. What he does in this uh, treatise is the discussion of the immortality of the soul. Um, I mean, that was a question which concerned practically all philosophers of ancient times. You know, what is the soul? Uh, do people have immortal souls? Die, does the soul die together with the body? Uh, do people have individual souls? Do they partake in a world soul? And this was a very basic question, and it's quite amazing that nowadays um, I have found very little concern among um, people old and also young to discuss about the soul and the beauty of the soul. Even so, I think that that is actually the most important because the soul is where our identity is located. Now, if you look at the discussion before Ibn Sina on that issue, uh, Aristotle uh, saw the soul as an enteleshi. Um, I don't know the English, trans English pronunciation of that word. It does exist in English, um, <clears throat> which is basically that the aim of the soul is the perfection uh, of sort of like an organic body um, that has the potential to live and therefore is becoming the most perfect of its possible being, but it's not separated from the body. And therefore, when the body dies, the soul also vanishes. Now, Plato, on the other side, um, thought that, you know, you not only have the human soul, the world has a soul, the earth, the animals, plants, all have souls. And basically, they uh, you know have to fight their whole life between the intellect that you know the soul uh, strives to become more and more spiritual uh, and the senses um, because the soul participates in both um, the soul is in motion uh, that is a self-moving process and therefore it is immortal and indestructible and it is the soul that breathes life into the body and death is the separation of the soul from the body. Now in the Phaedo, that's one of his uh, dialogues, he develops the idea that the soul exists before the birth and when a baby is born, um, but in the birth the soul attaches itself to the body and then it continues to exist after death. Now for Plotinus, who was a Neoplatonic philosopher who died 270 AD, the birth is the moment where the soul 
separates itself from the universal pre-existing soul and is individuated in this particular person. During the entire lifetime, the soul has to struggle to either fall into the indulgences of the sensuous pleasure <clears throat> or rising to the level of philosophy and intellect and never be dragged down to the material world. Now, Ibn Sina discusses the soul and the self-consciousness of the individual, and he uh, uses a very uh, fascinating thought experiment to come close to this idea. It's called the image of the, quote, floating man or the flying man. Uh, he says, you have to imagine a fully adult man, about, you know, 30 years, who all of a sudden plunges from nowhere into full adulthood. He has no memory of his history. He doesn't remember his childhood or anything else. He's just all of a sudden there. He's suddenly in an empty room, floating, not touching the ground, not touching the walls, just floating in, in the air. The room temperature is about the temperature of his body, so he doesn't have a sensuous experience through his skin. He, uh, his legs and arms are stretched out, so he has no sense of touch, like the feet or the hands touching. They are all stretched out. He has no sense of, sensation of touching. His eyes are blindfolded. He has no sight. His ears are covered. He has no hearing. Uh, he doesn't smell anything nor taste. So he is floating there in midair in total sensory deprivation. And then Avicenna or Ibn Sina asked the question, is this man aware of himself? Now, he basically comes to the conclusion that such an adult man who has fully his intellectual faculty but is divorced from his senses would absolutely have a sense of his self and because it is opposite and is separated from the senses it means the soul is not depending on material conditions now with this thought experiment he tried to solve the century old question what is the soul and does the soul have an existence separate from the body? And his answer is definitely uh, yes. This man would have a sense of self. Uh, he would not be dependent on any sensory experience. His soul exists separate from the body. And naturally, such a soul being immaterial survives after his death. He says in the Metaphysics physics, a quote, now it is the cognitive power of the soul that it thinks and further that it reflects on its own thinking in a reflective way and that it thinks again over this second order of thinking reflectively and through this accumulates relations to others. It builds so in one object different conditions, namely proportions which according to their power have no end. Thus, it is necessary that these mental forms of knowing which follow upon each other have no last link. 
literally no standstill with the necessary with the nece necessary result that one progresses continuously continually without end now that describes a, a self consciousness about one's own self conscious thought process so operation ibn sina um, is um, therefore you know coming from an idea of an image of man in which each human being has this idea of being you know a creative person and having an absolute value now therefore when we say we want to solve this greatest humanitarian crisis in afghanistan and start with a modern health system um, what uh, what do we have to do now and why is ibn sina the absolute appropriate uh, person to start this effort with as the chinese have demonstrated in wuhan two years ago uh, when they had the first cases of uh, uh, COVID-19 in Wuhan, they closed down the city of 11 or 15 million people and the entire uh, province around it and put everybody in absolute quarantine. Uh, and then they did all the other things, uh, contact tracing, isolation. Um, and they, contrary to the governments in the West, which could not make up their mind, should they, you know, put people in isolation, should they uh, not? And then because people didn't like it because of their liberal values, they did not. And now you look at the situation where, you know, in the United States, 900,000 people have died. In Germany alone, 115,000 people have died. Uh, in China, not even 5,000 people have died in a population which is more than four times bigger than that of the United States and um, more than 12 times bigger than that of Germany. So which uh, you know, policy was used and what was the most effective measure against pandemic? Quarantine. Now, who has first developed the concept of quarantine? It has been introduced the first time by Ibn Sina. He realized that isolation of 40 days is the best method to stop the spread of infections. Now let's see the film clip uh, of Ibn Sina and COVID-19. Ibn Sina? Men 
Siz torunuzda kub işitkenken. Merhaba dostum. Buyur Zengiz. Bizge avval fazı üstü var bilen, gece bol yuvuş için biraz sirke verseler. Kaysı halkının ve kaysı bir ülkenin adatı buldu. Bu avval kaysı o ülkede para ve vaktim rambolsa, bu şehrinin adatı buluş gerek. <gülüyor> Merhaba. Kanı kanı kanı. Sina, bu meşgum Karababa'nın davası var mı? Davası var. Bunun için en avval, adamların Karababa hakimiyetinden kutkarmak gerek. Ama hep korkmaktadır. Belki. Karababa adamdan adam yukarı. Bu hemen artıya. Kim başka? Yüz kollarca yapışıvaladı. Şunun için aldı sattığını maniyeti bazarlarını yapış gerek. Vaktince maçlarını hem bir küçük gerek. Namazını her kim bir üyüde okutursun. İbadetini toktatıp mescidlerini bir küçük. <gülüyor> So um, this is a film clip um, which obviously uh, has been produced. It's an old film, but recently uh, it has been issued uh, in Uzbekistan, you know, bringing the connection uh, to, to Ibn Sina. Uh, so obviously that thought uh, came to uh, many people uh, also from the region. And, um, you know, it is uh, worthwhile to reflect at this point, you know, we, we have all these demonstrations of anti-vaxxers, of people who absolutely refuse to be uh, isolated, quarantined, and, you know, have all kinds of conspiracy theories about the uh, <clears throat> pandemic. And I think it is worthwhile at this point to reflect what an incredible breakthrough it meant to have modern medicine and Ibn Sina is the absolute person which is the difference between you know a scientific approach to to medicine 
and and you know the previous completely superstitious ideas about medical treatments. So in his canon of medicine, which uh, you know, as I said, was the standard works uh, in Europe for medicine, uh, it had five books. It discussed in detail the anatomy of the body, the functions of the different uh, organs, the connection between the muscles, the nerve system, the psyche. The, he developed the a whole category and list of, of the different diseases and treatments. Uh, he listed all the medicines um, and basically, obviously, he built on the knowledge of uh, Hippocrate and Galen. Uh, but he absolutely made several fundamental breakthroughs and, you know, to find out about quarantine is just one of them. Uh, for example, he recognized that infections spread through tiny invisible particles, uh, among other things, uh, <clears throat> through contaminated water and soil. Um, he, for the first time, treated life-threatening diseases with the help of anesthesia, no, an anesthesia, anesthesia, uh, sorry, anesthesia. Uh, uh, and he had a knowledge about treating cancer in the early stages. Uh, he uh, knew that it was important to remove all affected tissues. He developed a diagnostic method for diabetes by measuring the sugar in the urine. Uh, he, uh, in his treatments, uh, emphasized the need to have attention in the patient uh, to the age, the body type, the emotional state, eating habits, lifestyle, uh, movement. Uh, he even discussed the effect of the seasons on the body. Uh, what is the impact if the air is cold and dry or warm and wet? Uh, in this canon uh, <clears throat> of medicine, he listed about 760 medicines. Um, and he also emphasized to never use a drug unused to first test it on animals and individual human beings before you put it in general use. He was absolutely aware of the relation of emotions and the physical condition of the person. He discussed how music has an effect on the physical and psychological condition of the patient. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that was a very rich compendium, you know, which in this form never existed before. And therefore, it was quite correct that already in the Middle Ages, he was called the father of modern medicine. And he shaped the medical science, both in the Orient and in the Occident. But Ibn Sina said medicine is one of the easy sciences. Um, so it, it was for him sort of, you know, the, the easiest part and, and just one of the many sciences which he pursued. Now, coming back to the most profound aspect, his development of metaphysics. Um, metaphysics uh, goes back to the Greek origin of the word meta ta physica, which literally means that what comes after physics or what is above physics. 
metaphysics as the first philosophy or as it also is called as an ontology which discusses the question of being as such as a being uh, existence so the issue concerned which concerned all philosophers from the earliest time especially the ancient greeks to the present time where such fundamental questions why do we exist why does anything exist at all when did existence start was it eternally there well obviously the different philosophers and schools gave very different answers and it was a continuous struggle of ideas about this question of you know is the universe the only one uh, when did it start um, and obviously all these questions metaphysical questions became extremely important for physics beyond the metaphysics to ask the right questions to formulate adequate hypothesis leading to fundamental scientific breakthroughs uh, or not. So one can actually trace progress in science to one specific philosophical tradition um, because it lent itself to ask the adequate uh, hypothesis, uh, you know, and that is uh, a, a very important question and, you know, uh, my late husband, Linda LaRouche, has, um, um, you know, done more than anybody uh, in the history of philosophy and science to answer that question. Now, that's a subject for another time. Now, these philosophical questions were there before natural science were developed. And Ibn Sina developed a new conception which did not exist in Aristotle and the followers of Aristotle, which are called the Peripatetics, nor in Plato and the Neoplatonics after him. This conception is what he calls the necessary existent. He uh, maintains that there is only one unique being, that all which exists is a necessary uh, is in a necessary way um, that, that this unique being is the only one uh, which exists out of itself. Everything else is also necessary, but it does not exist out of itself, but it is caused in a necessary way by this first principle. He calls these other non-self-subsisting non existences uh, contingent. It is the creative principle, uh, the necessary existence, that is above all creation, that can never create a second existence that belongs to the same level of existence like itself. It is the ultimate cause which precedes all which is only contingently possible. Now, to make that concrete, you know, uh, you and I. We are obviously not a necessary existent, but we are contingent because we need a cause. And that cause was essentially our parents who, you know, got married and had love. And then finally we, we were caused by this. 
but we are not without a cause. Um, so he says, since everything has a cause, what is behind this cause? Another cause. And behind that cause, still another cause, and so forth and so on. So behind this seemingly endless cycle of cause and effect, there must be one final cause which must define the rational order in the universe. And if there is one cause which effectuates all others, then that cause must be of a higher reality than all of its effects. So even Sina comes through his philosophical ref reflection to the conclusion that the creation has never began because the world exists in eternity because if there is such a necessary existence, that which exists only through the power of its nature, then it does not exist either by accident or in a contingent form. But the unique, unique characteristic of the necessary existence is that it is perfect, it is unlimited goodness, it is selfless benevolence, by bringing the world into existence, it emanates its goodness and love. Therefore, this highest form of being does not start to create a particular point in time, because it is the infinite goodness. It does not hold back until a certain point in time where it starts to create. It is unchangeable. It is not a potentiality which then decides to come, uh, you know, to uh, start to create the process of creation. Ibn Sina says it does not make sense that this highest being is first inactive and then decides suddenly to start its creative activity. For such a potentiality, for such a po possibility, there is no reason because the necessary existent is only is the only existent and also unchangeable so what would be the reason for it all of a sudden to start its creative activity it also does not make sense to assume that the necessary existent was there before the creation because that would assume that it is only temporal temporary while in reality, it is outside of all time. Therefore, in his view, the world is there in eternity, a continuous revelation of the goodness and charity of the creator, of Allah. The necessary existent as the first existing cannot be a multitude. It is simple and it is not material. It is entirely mental, intellectual, spiritual, as the movement principle. And Allah does not create all the lower forms of existence. He creates the higher forms of intelligences, who then create other intelligences, who in turn create further intelligence, describing a progression to lower levels of completeness the further they become distant from the first cause. Nevertheless, God is present in all forms of creation, either directly as in the creation of the first intelligence 
or indirectly as in all other creations. Evil does exist, but it is not in the intention of the creator. Evil is a lack of something. And the individual has the free will to act in a responsible way to shape his own destiny and future. This creation theory is what is the fundamentally new in the metaphysics of Ibn Sina. And it is very different from Aristotle and also the Neoplatonics because it implies that God has transferred his power of creation to his creatures, namely mankind. And this is the main reason why Ibn Sina, an Islamic philosopher, was accepted so widely in the thinking of many European medieval thinkers. While he was fought by some of the Islamic philosophers such as Al-Ghazali and Averroes. But in Europe, where his works were immediately translated in the 12th century into Spanish, into Latin, such uh, important philosophers as Thomas of Aquinas, uh, who quoted Avicenna, as he was called now in Europe, 400 times in his works, uh, and also Albertus Magnus in the translation schools of Toledo in Spain, as well as in the era of Frederick II of Hohenstaufen in Sicily, and the church fathers found his philosophy in great affinity with Augustine and the French philosopher and historian Etienne Gilson, uh, who lived from 1848 uh, uh, uh, to 1978. He even coined the notion of Augustinism, Augustinisme I hope I pronounced this halfway correctly. Now, this is very fascinating because Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD, uh, who is one of the absolute founders of Christian, uh, a specific tr Christian tradition in, in, in Europe, he had insisted that there is no contradiction between faith and knowledge as compared to those people who say that only the revelation faith is what counts and it's completely separate from knowledge. And what Augustine uh, cited as the proof that there is no such contradiction between faith and knowledge, uh, he pointed to Plato, uh, who lived from 428, 384 BC, um, that he already found almost four centuries before Christ came uh, on earth with the uh, revelation and Christianity, came to the same conclusions about the creation of the universe, the nature of man, and therefore, you know, one could arrive both through revelation as well as through philosophy and knowledge to the same conclusion. Now, this is a very important tradition because it is that which makes reason possible, and, you know, that is what many great uh, philosophers and scientists, you know, found like Kepler, who was a absolute religious uh, person, Nicholas of Kuhs being an obvious uh, other one and many others, uh, as compared 
to those people who insist that you know you have to be an absolute materialist to come to these conclusions. Now Wilhelm uh, of uh, Auxerre, uh, who lived uh, in the 13th century, who was a magister of theology in Paris, uh, was a typical representative of this Augustinian Avicenne-son. Avicenne uh, he was very much focused on this idea of God's revelations expressed through Avicenna's speculations about the active intellect through which the process of creation continues. Uh, with other words, not a God who creates the world and then becomes sort of passive, but that it is this continuous intervention of the active intellect which keeps driving the process of creation forward. Now, very fascinating, Dante Alighieri, whose 700th birthday we celebrated last year, 1265 to 1321, uh, and the founder of the Italian language, in one of his uh, beautiful writings, the Convivio, the Gastmal, uh, extensively lets Avicenna speak, and together in his, uh, in his Commedia, according uh, to the Dante expert Rudolf Palgen, has given the cosmos of Avicenna a poetical existence. And according to this um, uh, expert, the whole conception of the Commedia is a completely extraordinary poetic composition, uh, which reflects the fascination with the idea of a heavenly active intelligence. Uh, the damned um, in, in the inferno, in hell, are those who have lost the il ben del intelletto, the asset of intellect, which is, the, which is higher than the understanding, um, you know, the separation of senses, understanding, reason. Uh, it is this higher asset of intellect, which, uh, you know, is what the people in hell lost, they may have still understanding because evil, evil people still can be understanding, but they are in hell because they lost exactly that highest quality of, uh, uh, of um, you know, the creative, creative mentation, you would call it in, in nowadays words. Another one who was absolutely fascinated with Avicenna was Marsilio Ficino, uh, who was one of the Platonic um, teachers at the Platonic Academy in Florence, uh, which obviously played a, a decisive role in the Italian Renaissance. And, you know, this was what revived uh, Plato, who was lost for 1700 years in Europe, and which was brought back to Italy by uh, Nicholas of Cus and his uh, you know, his friends from the Greek Orthodox Church when they came to the Concile of uh, Florence. So this Ficino called Avicenna the divine. Now, before that, Nicholas of Cusa himself, uh, uh, you find quotes of Avicenna throughout his works in one of his earliest sermons, uh, the sermon number two, uh, 
um, he quotes uh, Avicenna then in the Docta Ignorantia in the second book, and also in the Apoli Apologiae, uh, the Docta Ignorantiae, which is the defense of the learned ignorance, uh, he uh, basically uh, quoted Avicenna in a very, very positive way all the time. And if you ever go to Bernkastel Kuhs, which I can only advise you to do, and when you are lucky, I will take you there for a tour, um, <clears throat> then uh, you will see that uh, he had in his library a lot of Avicenna's writings in his possession, uh, and he admired Avicenna very, very much. Now, Nicolaus agreed with Thomas of Aquinas uh, and his reflections on Avicenna that the human mind comprehends the transcendental notion of being before uh, the concretization of individual things as such. In other words, that the mind has a sense of grasping the essence, the being, before um, you know, grasping concrete matters as such. Now, Nicolaus in De Pace Fide about peace in religion, one of his beautiful uh, platonic dialogue about how to have a, a dialogue among the different religions to arrive at peace. He made a reference to Avicenna, uh, which is very important, uh, namely that Avicenna, uh, when he talked about the happiness people will experience in paradise, is spiritual, spirituality. The happiness one finds in the knowledge of God and truth <coughs> and not the earthly joys. Some commentators also of the Quran uh, had emphasized, <coughs> which obviously uh, is a much higher conception about what happiness represents. Now, Kusa's conception of man as an instrument of God uh, creating uh, the uh, being being the instrument of God by continuously um, carrying on the process of creation through the creativity of man, as this is expressed in Kusa's notions of imago viva dei, the living image of God, and the vis creativa, the creative power, which in, is inherent in every human being, these are clearly in affinity with the, with the relation of Avicenna's necessary existence as the first eternal cause and the continuous affecting of that principle through the active intellect. Well, what a fantastic idea uh, is this, that God continues his creation through man. And what a tremendous responsibility that puts on everybody's shoulders. Even Sina had a clear conception about the eternity of the world and the eternity of the principle of creation. And it is not the often misunderstood idea of the Christian fundamentalist creationists who completely oppose modern science because it seems to contradict revelation. For Ibn Sina, the process of creation did not start at one point because that would have meant a sudden change in God's nature. But since the character of the highest being is pure goodness, 
it is part of the essence of continuously to create other beings, Seiende in German. It, if it, this highest being would have all of a sudden started to create, there would have been a change in its nature and that is excluded by definition because then it would not be the highest being. Interestingly, did Thomas of Aquinas think that the eternity of creation <coughs> was compatible with the divine freedom? God could have great decided to create the world from eternity. Before Ibn Sina, there was, and that basically would, would solve the problem of, you know, being in contradiction to the revelation that God created the world in seven days and that it had a beginning because if God decides to create the world from eternity you know then that resolves this this supposed conflict that there was a beginning of creation before Ibn Sina there was a Christian philosopher in the ninth century with the name of Johannes Cotus Eriogena who in his writings um, who unfortunately became very little known during his lifetime, um, basically had a similar approach. And when later philosophers tried to refer to him, he was condemned by Pope Honorius III as a heretic. So there was no significant influence on the following thinkers, therefore. So that, in a certain sense, was, you know, a development in the same direction, but it didn't have a uh, influence. So all the more amazing it is that Avicenna was absorbed practically without ever having been condemned by the church. Um, there were counter arguments against aspects of his philosophy. Uh, yes, but he was never really condemned uh, as a heretic or anything like that. So one can definitely say that Avicenna not only revolutionized medical science for Europe for many centuries, but he also laid the foundation for a new metaphysics in the West. But in the evolution of human knowledge, especially in light of modern science, what did metaphysics contribute to the advancement of man's conception of the universe? What does all of this talk about the necessary existence have as relevance for us today. On Christmas last year, on the 25th December, which just passed, there was the successful launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be fully operational in June of this year. And on the 8th of January, just a week ago, it swung the last of three 18 hexagonal mirror segments into position, locking them together into a 6.5 meter wide, quote, cosmic eye. It is supposed to reach its final location, a gravitationally stable point in space known as the Lagrange 2 point on January 23rd in eight days from now. The telescope will look back in time as much as 13.5 billion years. It will study astronomical phenomena 
such as the most distant galaxies in our universe. And what will it find out? And now please show the clip, the 29, 29 days on the edge. This is a science mission on par with Apollo missions, Space Shuttle, International Space Station, and Hubble missions. For nearly two decades, thousands of people around the world, many have spent their entire careers, built the James Webb Space Telescope. And it all comes down to this. Once we launch the James Webb Space Telescope, there are no second chances. We have 300 single point failure items, and they all have to work right. When you're a million miles away from the Earth, you can't send someone to fix it. We've never put a telescope this large in space. We want to see distant parts of the universe humans have never seen before. Looking back in time almost 14 billion years to see the first galaxies that formed after the Big Bang. And we want to search for the building blocks of life in the atmospheres of planets orbiting distant stars. To unfold the history of the universe, we must first unfold this telescope. This is the largest primary mirror, the largest sun shield, and the most powerful space telescope ever built. And yet, this large telescope needs to fit inside a 5.4 meter diameter rocket fairing. That's the largest fairing size available on any rocket, and it's the fairing size on our ride to space. The Ariane 5, provided by the European Space Agency, is one of the world's most powerful rockets. To cheat the fairing size limit, we build Webb to fold like origami to fit inside the rocket fair. And this brings us to our most challenging part of this mission, unfolding it in space. This thank God. Think of what you're doing. You're taking this extraordinarily delicate, precise, state-of-the-art scientific instrument, you're slapping it on a rocket, and for the next eight minutes, the explosion from that rocket is following you into outer space. Vibrating you. Shaking you. Everything that goes into outer space has to live through this environment and work once it gets there without having someone come to fix it. Two weeks. That's how long it will take to fully deploy the Webb telescope. We can take longer if we need to, but those two weeks after launch are gonna be nail biters. This is the Mission Operations Center at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. Those two weeks after launch will be like our Super Bowl, World Cup, you pick the analogy. Years of training comes down to these moments. The Webb Observatory has 50 major deployments. 50, depending on how you categorize them, and 178 release mechanisms must work to deploy those 50 parts. Every single one of them must work. Unfolding Web is hands down the most complicated spacecraft activity we've ever done. Then again, nothing about Web is easy. We've never done any of this before. 
There's nothing simple about sending anything into space. You can't do it without taking risks. This mission is squarely in new spacecraft territory. Webb is the perfect example of science desire driving engineering capability to new frontiers. Webb's unique design was born from reasoned engineering to accomplish its science goals. Here's the plan. Shortly after launch, we unfold Webb's solar panel for power and our Huygen antenna for communication. About 12 hours later, we have an important engine firing that sends Webb on the proper course towards its orbital destination, about a million miles away. That's where Webb will do its science. Webb will be moving so fast, it passes the moon's orbit in one and a half days, half the time it took Apollo astronauts to reach lunar orbit. First, we lower the sunshield pallet, then raise Webb's primary mirror and instruments away from the sunshield. The solar wind will push us around with the sunshield open, so we'll unfold a trim tab to help keep us stable. We got these huge, iconic, golded segmented mirrors that will help us deliver amazing new images from the cosmos. But in some ways, the sunshield is a lot more complicated, and it's just as essential. Without it, nothing works. Here we've got five sunshield layers, approximately 8,900 square feet, almost the size of three tennis courts, a very thin Kapton material about one to two thousandths of an inch thick. Making them go where you want them to go in zero G is extremely challenging. The sun shield shades the telescope from the heat of the sun, earth, and moon. The concept is simple, but there is nothing simple about the design or operation, especially when you get to space. Webb's sunshield assembly includes 140 release mechanisms, approximately 70 hinge assemblies, eight deployment motors, bearings, springs, gears, about 400 pulleys, and 90 cables totaling 1,312 feet. All this just to keep the sunshield under control as it unfolds. First, we release these special restraints that protect the sunshield during launch. They roll out of the way, but not all the way, until we are ready to deploy a side. Next, we release a set of covers over the core region. Now comes the critical point. All 107 sunshield release mechanisms need to fire on cue. 107. They free the five sunshield layers, allowing them to extend as the mid-booms deploy. Sunshield fully deployed, we start setting up the optics. First, the secondary mirror is extended and locked into place. And a special radiator behind web is extended, which helps further lower the temperature of the science instruments. Finally, we open the primary mirror's wings and lock them in place. With that done, web is in its final configuration, but we're not done yet. After 47 deployments, and accomplishing the hardest spacecraft unfolding NASA has ever done, Webb still won't be ready for science. While the instruments cool, we'll control motors behind each of Webb's 18 mirror segments, the secondary mirror, and the fine steering mirror located inside the center of the primary mirror. We'll precisely align the mirror segments to form a perfect mirror. 
Then, Webb will be ready to explore the cosmos. by June, and then we will find out what happened in the last almost 14 billion years. And we will find out, is the theory of the Big Bang going to be confirmed? Was that the moment that the universe sprang out of nothingness? Or was there something before? It is clear that the universe is expanding. So if you go back in time, uh, and that will be possible with this uh, telescope, it will become smaller and smaller and maybe shrink to a point, as the theory of the Big Bang says, which supposedly happened 13.8 billion years ago. Maybe it existed before that. Maybe the universe contracted before the Big Bang until it reached this point, until matter was unimaginably densely compressed. And then the Big Bang happened and then started to expand again. All the different theories, how the universe could have looked before our world will be, <clears throat> uh, before our world came into being, will be greatly boosted by the finding of the Webb telescope. We will find answers to questions we cannot even ask yet. Uh, and you know, it will be a fantastic opening up of the window into the real function of our universe. So maybe we get closer to understand the necessary existence of Ibn Sina, according to which the sudden beginning of the universe does not make any sense because it is not compatible with the goodness of this highest principle of creation. Maybe our mind will have to learn in completely different, to think in completely different dimensions. For sure, not the Euclidean space and time. Maybe one has to invent a completely new relativity theory once one which fits the idea of what Lyndon LaRouche has called the simultaneity of eternity. <clears throat> now, the extraterrestrial, this is now a quote I'm reading, the extraterrestrial imperative is a driving force in the natural growth of the terrestrial life beyond its planet's limits. As such, it is an integral part of the obviously expansionistic and growth-oriented pattern of life's evolution. This drive caused life to grow from infinitesimal beginning into a force that encompasses and transforms the entire planet through its biosphere. More basically, the extraterrestrial imperative expresses a first message, a prime ordeal imperative bred into the very essence of the universe driving the evolution of matter from the simplest form the elementary particles 
to highly complex structures, namely the intelligent brain. A vast amount of cosmic energy is released by stellar matter in the initial phase of this process. The transformation of hydrogen to helium and heavier elements and bound up in the later phases involving the formation and the evolution of living matter. By these routes, it is possible to identify the extraterrestrial imperative as the basic principle that can be derived from a consistent interpretation and generalization of recurring phenomena coming to the evolutionary process. These words were written in 1971 by Kraft Erike, the German-American visionary and rocket scientist who happened to have been a close friend of us and was a board member of the Schiller Institute. And he coined this notion of the extraterrestrial imperative to signify the task of humanity to explore space, since that brings man beyond the idea of the Earth as a closed system and opens the entire universe to humanity. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope, a project which involved the work of over 10,000 people from over 14 countries over 25 years, and they put this telescope into space 1 million miles away from Earth. I think this is fantastic. If mankind can do this, can we mobilize this with the same determination to save the Afghan people with Operation Ibn Sina? The Islamic world must reconnect to its golden age and have a renaissance of all those beautiful philosophers, artists, scientists of the period between 750 until the beginning of the 11th century of which Ibn Sina was the high point. So I call on you to all work together on Operation Ibn Sina. And you know, if we can put a telescope like that in space to find out the origins of the universe, we can save Afghanistan. And now I want to show the clip of my late husband, Lyndon LaRouche, who was absolutely in line with that thinking. That is, if we were to take the attitude which the United States had under the Kennedy Space Program, or it was actually the Eisenhower Kennedy Space Program from about 1958, the so-called Sputnik, post-Sputnik program, to about 1965, if we maintain that, combined with policies of tax investment credit, investment tax credits, for investments of a suitable kind with a uh, science enrichment program in our schools and similar kinds of things that we did then. Nothing more than that. I can assure you that knowing what we know is important to work upon in science, in technology, knowing the kinds of projects which are the best way to express these technological improvements, I assure you that if mankind on this planet had the political will to do that, we would increase the potential population density of this planet at a higher standard of living by factors as much as 40 over the decades. Next three generations. 
the factor of 10. We could sustain by the end of this century, or the end of the of two generations, we could say we'd be sustaining a potential population in the order of magnitude of 100 billion people. More comfortably, much better fed, much more secure, much freer, much less crowded than today because we'd use land more intelligently. There are two kinds of natural law or two aspects of natural law. One are the laws of the universe. And the man who, or say a Congress were to repeal the law of gravity, just for illustration, would that repeal the law of gravity? It would not. So that whenever men, because they have great political power, say that they are defying what is in effect a law of the physical universe, a law of nature, natural law, and they cause others by their power to support that defiance of nature, what happens to the nations which defy nature? They are crushed, they're destroyed. Their defiance of natural law becomes the instrument of their destruction. If you support politicians who engage in that defiance of natural law, what do you bring upon yourself and your nation? You become an accomplice, you enforce that destruction, you bring about the destruction of your nation, your family, of everything. That in order to deal with the kind of crisis which confronts us, we must look within ourselves and find a value within us so precious that if we spent our lives to defend that value, we would have thereby gained our lives because we had gained the purpose of our mortal existence. Now that's what a, that's what a soldier ought to carry into battle is courage, not patriotism, but that. Not patriotism as a, the abstraction of a flag. Not patriotism as a racist concept. Not patriotism as in any other of these symbolic senses. But patriotism in the sense, which we ought to have in the United States, but we're pretty much estranged from. To know what Ben Franklin and the others represent. It's a system of representative self-government under natural law, and under law governed by natural law. That to imagine the horror of having once known such a form of self-government, to imagine living under slavery, which is not only a material oppression, but a destruction of the very soul of one's children. And there lies upon us then, and how we respond to that challenge the moral responsibility for the fate of hundreds of billions of souls who in all propriety should be born in the time to come. There lies upon us the responsibility of looking back to those martyrs 
who gave us institutions in which truth was given social standing and thus freedom. There is no freedom without truth and there is no truth without freedom. The right of an individual informed by right principles to come to an opinion based on reason, not arbitrary opinion, but based on careful employment of reason. And the right of that individual to stand up and say, this is what I believe unless I am persuaded to the contrary by reason. That is freedom. If the entirety of society disagrees with you, so what? You have the right, as long as you're guided by reason, and as long as you are, will submit yourself to correction of your opinion by reason, that is the right to assert an opinion contrary to the majority of society around you, that is freedom. A democratic society, as Project Democracy in the Congress defines it today, is, is the most horrible abomination imaginable, against which the founders of the United States warned. Democracy is the worst of all evils, the worst of all tyrants, because there is no worse tyrant than in the irrational mob, the lynch mob. Democracy, as they define it, is lynch mob democracy. Just don't have the wrong color of skin or the wrong color of opinion. Under which the individual has no right, but the right to agree with what appears to be majority or ruling opinion. And if the mob changes its opinion, you tear off your clothes and put on the clothes it puts on, and so forth and so on. A society of fads and insanity with no moral purpose, no character, and no ability to reason. The defense of the individual who wishes to reason, who wishes to be governed by natural law and reason, that is the most sacred duty of society, the defense and nurture of such individuals. And a society which does not fulfill that mission is unfit to exist. A form of government which does not serve that purpose is not fit to exist because it does not protect the most precious part human society, the development of the powers of reason in the individual, the thing that makes us truly human, the thing that makes our lives, individual lives, each sacred. And that's what is at stake 